Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Available in three colors, its thin light design, built-in HD camera, and touchscreen turns any space into your workspace. More at surface.com slash laptop go. How about we create some, a new name for mental health and we call it mental muscle? How do we call it mind strength? How do we call it, like, ultimately, it's about do I have, am I using the tools to, as I work on my muscles physically that people can see? I'm also working on the muscles that people can't see, my head and my heart. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 730 Podcast, and I'm your host, Wally White. The reason we call this the 730 Podcast is because in the 90s song, Ebonics, the late, great Big L raps. If you 730, that means you crazy. Some might call me 730. I was recently hospitalized and diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and I'm trying to make sense of an issue both for myself and my audience that's too often misunderstood. I'm not a mental health expert, but I'm here to engage mental health professionals, athletes, artists, and other cultural influencers conversations that explore how trauma and mental illness intersect with black culture. I recently got the opportunity to rap with Ashanti Branch. He's an educator, community organizer, and executive director of the Everforward Club. Everforward provides educational, emotional, and personal development programs for youth in Oakland. He also started the 100,000 Mask Campaign and the 24-Hour Relay, which are two really dope initiatives that you'll learn more about on this episode. We talked about his upbringing in Oakland, what it was like for him growing up in a single-parent home, and the initiatives Everforward has taken to ensure that Oakland's Black and Latino youth have safe spaces to support their emotional development. This conversation was one of the more emotional ones I've had with the guests on 730. It was amazing to see how much we have in common, not only with our work, but also with our experiences growing up in poverty. So here it is. Tell me a little bit about Everforward. So um, Everforward is a youth development and mentoring program. We, um, we work with primarily young men, middle school and high school for the Everforward Club. Our second program is ever for professional development that is trying to help educators, teachers, social workers, you know, anyone who is working with youth or even working with their own teams of, of people in their own workforce, you know, in, in corporate spaces um, to really build deeper connection and community. And our third program is called Everford Experiences, and that is work that we do outside of Everford Club, work that we do just to the world. So the 100,000 Mass Challenge, we have an event every year called the 24-Hour Relay. Um, and so just really in, in engaging experiences for people in our communities. Why did you start it? So um, I created it because I was this teacher in this new school. Well, I'm a new school to me. I was a first year teacher and I'm doing a horrible job. I was failing. And I saw these young men in my class, smart, brilliant, incredible. They didn't believe it. They didn't even show it. But I could see it. Like I could see it in them. And so when I invited those young men to lunch that one day, I said, look, I'll buy you lunch once a week. In exchange for lunch, teach me how to be a better teacher. And that's how the Everford Club was started. I wasn't trying to, there's no way I would have, if you told me I was starting a nonprofit, I would have laughed and I would have said, you don't get much more nonprofit than teaching. <laughs> why, why, why would I start something to make, make it worse than what I'm already doing? I'm barely making it month to month. You mean, you want me to go and have to hunt for my money every month? So you were teaching, but from what I understand, you had an entirely different career that was almost antithetic to teaching before you made that transition. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh yeah. I, I can tell you, I never wanted to be a teacher. I'm clear about that. 
I'm clear that my mom was a teacher and we were broke. We were broke. And I was like, if teachers don't get paid, then the job I want to have is going to make me rich. And teachers don't get rich. So that's why I was clear. So I was an engineer. I graduated in civil engineering. Uh, my journey from you know elementary school, middle school, high school, there was a, there's a lot of stories in there. But the one in particular is Miss BP in middle school changed my life. She said, um, life doesn't give you what you want. Life gives you what you get. Uh, you know, I grew up by a single, raised by a single mother. My father died before I was born. Um, I had a lot of anger because I was so I couldn't feel sad. I was so that men don't show sadness, can't feel sadness, and definitely never afraid. And at the man of the house at seven years old, I had to like put on these roles that didn't feel like I was equipped to put on, but I had to fake it. So not showing your feelings, I just turned my 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 feelings about my father. I turned it into anger, like anger at him, anger at the world, anger at just the society, but I was sad. Like she, she gave like that. It was, it was small words, but it, it, I, I felt and I heard it. I, I know that you're sad that your father died, but what? Like, how do you know I'm sad? Cause I'm not supposed to be showing sad, but to, get, to have permission that sadness was okay. It doesn't make me weak or softer, less than a man. Then I, it was like this affirmation and I, uh, and I heard it. And I, from then on, I was focused. And so I said, well, instead of being mad about it, I have permission to be sad, but also my community doesn't let boys show sad. So how about I just try and make him proud? Since he's not here and I am sad about it, how about I not just turn it into anger and be a rageful little young man growing around Oakland, which is full of young men enraged, probably because they're not showing other emotions they need to be showing and dealing with. So I said, how about I just say, I want to make him proud that when he looks down and see me, he'll be like, I'm proud that's my son. That's a different context. How was that position for you? Did your mother have conversations with you about your dad not being there? When did you come to the realization that you were, in fact, fatherless? Um, I think early. I'm trying to think. Man, that's a great question. I wonder when was it? I probably need to do some like deep thinking about when I remember that. Um, I just remember it from the beginning. Like, you know, I guess when you start seeing kids with their fathers, I think... Um, like my uncle in Arkansas, you know, my cut, my, my one of my favorite cousins, cousins growing up, his name was Pee Wee. And my, my uncle I knew was his father. And I was like, probably around that time, like, where's my father? And then finding out that my father had died, like he had heart problems. And then I, I don't remember the first time, but I remember the first time that I got to a really deeper resonate, uh, resonation, like I resonated with it. So I was like 11, I was in elementary, I think sixth grade. I had to do this family tree project. And so I had to know, like, you know, family tree back to so many generations. And I asked my mom about my father. Like, what were the heart problems? Because, you know, is it hereditary? Is it like blah, blah, blah? And I remember her saying, well, you know, um, you want to know the, like, the full story? And I was like, yeah, don't get complicated. I don't care about this assignment too much, you know. Just tell me what happened to his heart, you know. A heart attack, blah, 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 blah. I don't remember what I was saying. But I was like, why are you making this so, like, mysterious? Like, Tell me what heart problem he has so I can put this on this paper, you know? And she said, well, are you ready to hear the story? I'm like, yeah. Like, what's the problem? And she said, come on, sit down. I was like, I don't have time to sit down. Just tell me what's going on, you know? I just remember being really irritated, getting more irritated with her every second, like, because she kept just, like, making this thing prolonged, you know? And she said, "Um, you know, your dad was out with, it was the 70s, right? And your dad was out, you know, smoking weed with some friends, that old 70s weed, right? And uh, I guess somebody thought it wasn't strong enough, so they put something in it, and his heart couldn't handle it. And so these guys who he was with, instead of them taking him to the hospital, 
they took him to my grandmother's house and left him there. And before the ambulance could get there or, you know, in that process, uh, my father passed away. And so I was like, wait, why, why did you tell me his heart problem? Yeah, heart, well, it was something him, his heart couldn't handle it. And I was like, I was like, I felt, I felt betrayed about the story. Um, I felt, I felt sad that, I mean, his friends, like, how do your friends do that to you? How do they, I'm, I'm young too, right? So, wow, I'm feeling it. Yeah. Ooh. Um. Like, how do your, how do your friends do that to you, right? Like, how do you have friends who, instead of helping you, they just let you die, right? And so I, I think from that, I think I went to my room and I just cried. I think I cried the whole night. And I just remember like the feeling like, can you trust anybody? Like, can you, I can't trust my mom to tell me a real story, the truth, or all the truth. And then now you got a situation where friends have, have, have let your father die. So I had this, like, how do you trust friends? And I think from that point on, I just really came to a place of not trusting a lot. I already had a hard time trusting people because, you know, I don't, I'm, there's no men to trust in my life except my grandfather, but as family. But then now having a really delicate, light, kind of like hands-off relationship with friends because you're in trouble. How, are they, how do they help you, right? Just my own. So it was just my story that I was telling myself, but it was what I was feeling. And so I just remember that night, I just cried myself to sleep, you know, and um my mom came in the room and she was like, do you want me to sit with you? And I, I didn't want to talk to her. I really kind of wanted to, but I was, I think I was just still too emotional about it. And I I just cried that night. So, so that anger when I went into middle school was really rich. Like it was real, it was, it was raw. And it was, you know, I liked Ms. BP. I didn't like her class. I wasn't at school really to learn. I was at school to take a break from my chaotic life. Cause you know, I'm taking care of, I'm, I'm like the man of the house. I'm taking care of my siblings and cooking and cleaning and washing and, I'm like, you know, super domesticated in my house to make sure I'm, you know, I can clean a house, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think ultimately it was like a lot of anger. And I just, you know, when you're raised by a single mother, you, you don't you don't really get to demonstrate your manly qualities, right? Because she's in charge, right? And so therefore, since there's no man to reinforce you how you feel about stuff, you always have to acquiesce. Or at least I had to always take care of her feelings, make sure she was okay, right? Because when she's not okay, nobody's okay, right? It was, it was a really rough kind of situation, I remember. So you mentioned that you didn't want to be poor. You had, like, grown up in with a single mother. Dad wasn't around. For a person that doesn't understand or know what inner-city poverty looks like, can you can you explain it based on through your lens and your experience? It's kind of like... There's never enough money at the end of the month. Like everything you, if you wanted something, it was always no. Unless it was like life or death medicine. Yes, we need. Um, no, you don't need that. You don't need no shoes. Your shoes, those shoes will last a little longer. I mean, I had times where I'm walking to sh- school with holes in my shoes. When I get to school, I'm just squishing water out of my shoes half the day in the halls, trying to walk really slow so that no one can hear it and see it. Jackets that are just, you know, for show, because they don't work. So, you know, the jacket that you wear from home to get to school in the rain, it didn't work. So now you're soaking wet. Like, like just, like, and, I, and I'm making the simple examples because I was young, and what was I trying to do? I was trying to just exist. But the stuff I had to exist in, like, never having things that anybody would ever compliment you on in terms of, you know, and when you're in middle, when you're in school, like those are, 
Those, I mean, those, those are important things, you know, to a kid, right? Now, did, was there food? Yeah, we always had something in there, right? I mean, I, I remember some sandwiches that were just condiments, right? But it was something, right? I Mayonnaise remember. sandwich with salt and pepper. Oh, man. We a little ketchup on there, a little mustard. <laughs> <laughs> just like, what is this? Like, it just remember in my mind, like, this is not okay. This is this is what's wrong with this? Because no TV show I ever watched had this kind of not even the, even good times. They just never showed you them eating, so you didn't you didn't think about food when you watched their show. But you like at least felt like is this everybody? Is that why JJ so skinny? Because he ain't eat nothing. Like what are the things that I'm like? Why don't just all the things I thought about just growing up? Um, I'll, I'll say you know coming home and the lights are not working right because rent is more important than lights. Plugging your refrigerator in the neighbor's, you know, socket just to keep the food from spoiling until we can get a little something on the bill, you know, those kind of things where you just felt like, why me? Like, why us? Like, why? I think I'm a good person. I think my mom's a good person. Why are we struggling with stuff like that? Why are we got a house infested with roaches? Right. Like today, I remember one day we had to get the fumigator come out. We had to cover up everything. And then um, like. I get. I went to school late because my mom had to help. We had to cover everything with all these tarps so they could fumigate the apartment. And I remember getting to school and the teacher was giving me a hard time. And I was like, um, my mom forgot to write the note because she was late to work too. So she was just like, go in and just tell them that I'll call them later. And I came to school and I'm like, ladies, like, why are you late? Where's your note? I said, I don't have a note. My mom was in a hurry. Why your mom didn't give you a note, right? And I'm like, well, because we had something to take care of this morning, you know, and I'm not trying to tell them my business, but I'm like, I'm like, they want to. They want to hear something, and so I'm just trying to make up. I'm just, I don't even know how to lie, really. But I'm mean, like, we had to take care of stuff at the house, you know, before I had to come to school. Why did you know? And I remember just like feeling ashamed. Like the real story is that we had to cover up all of our stuff so the fumigator could come. Right? Like that's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to think about. Like that's someone trying to explain to somebody another story to make up. I didn't prepare a lie. I just came to school to get you know to go to school. So I think that just all the growing up, like being on food stamps, like I'm talking about the old school food stamps that look like Monopoly money, right? So you're in the, the store. booklets. Oh, my God. And you can't tear it out before because that's, you know, because you got to walk in with the booklet. And then so I would let lying. My mom would send me to the store to buy two or three things. I'm like, oh, you can go ahead of me. I let like 10 people go ahead of me so I can be the last one in line because I don't want people to look at me and pull out this funny money. Cause you can't hide it now. You can, you know, you can have a little ATM card. You just like do do do, and you're done. That wasn't the way it was back then, you know. And so I just felt always like, like not enough. Like waiting in line for for food for free cheese and peanut butter. Like my mom would leave me in line because it was usually Friday the pickup days, so she could go to the bank and take care of whatever. So she had to take care of. So I'd be in line by myself and just feeling like embarrassed and feeling ashamed and so i think you know i think about the poverty mindset like being poor and being like it just it was almost like um with the internalization was like always i think the question i asked myself often was why why me like why why do i why is my life like this why do i have why why do i have a better life right why did my father have to die like why is there one income only in this house to make things work? Like why? I think I had a lot of whys. I didn't have a lot of answers to them. I think it, the, when I think about, you know, trauma things happens and it affects people in different ways. I, I heard a, um, this author say, like, it's not what happens to you. It happens what's in, it's what happens inside of you. Mm-hmm. 
Similar to Ashanti, I grew up extremely poor. Neither of my biological parents had careers. My father provided me and my brother with the basics, food and a roof over our heads. Once my dad passed, I went to live with my mother and bounced around homeless shelters and schools throughout New York City. During this time, I attended a middle school in East New York, Brooklyn. In the mornings, I would get up at the crack of dawn to leave for school. I didn't want my classmates to see where I lived, and I was oftentimes hungry from not eating the night before. So I rushed to catch breakfast in the morning before classes began. And in the afternoons, I would leave right after school to avoid walking with my friends. Many of my friends would often ask, yo, where do you live? And I would lie saying, I live in Van Dyke. Van Dyke was a housing project on the East New York Brownsville border. I didn't fucking live in Van Dyke. My cousin did. Just think about this. I lied about living in one of New York's most notorious housing projects. I lied because I was ashamed and I didn't want to be teased and picked on. I still carry the psychological effects of all of this. I would go so far to say that I have poverty-stricken PTSD. I live in a constant state of fear about possibly having to relive all of these moments. Having this experience of growing up in poverty, you feel like has really helped you really connect and penetrate the minds of the, the youth that you work with, it sounds like. You know, I think it helps me to just understand struggle, right? I understand it in a way. And I, I know that everyone goes, I told young people, look, I don't know your story unless you tell me, but I know what it's like to struggle. So I, my struggle may look different than your struggle. And I'm not here to compare struggles, but I'm here to let you know that you don't have to feel like I, somebody wouldn't understand. So when I know students are going through it, um, I, I feel that how do I help them to know that it doesn't have to stay there. Like whatever you've been through, that it doesn't have to define you in the future. It can be a part of your story. It helps liberate you and help you liberate others, but it doesn't have to be what the stories that dragged you down and out. And so I've been working really hard around like transforming my story. My war could be the medicine for someone else. And I think that that is how I just kind of hold the idea of storytelling. So you have this, this childhood of growing up, you know, poor in Oakland and you really push to, you know, make your way out of that and you become an engineer, but then you transition to becoming a teacher. How the hell did that happen? Like, how do you go from like not wanting to have to struggle to finally not having to struggle to choosing or, you know, electing to be in a, a profession that isn't necessarily the most lucrative? So, um, yeah, so I was enjoying making money. I was an engineer. I moved to a fancy city in the Bay Area. Uh, like it's called Walnut Creek. Can you, just, uh, can you envision what Walnut Creek looks like? Yeah, it looks like that. Uh, fancy, <laughs> little, yeah, fancy little downtown. I lived right across from the grocery store. I could walk to the downtown. Like, I was like, this is what I, this is beautiful. This is amazing. I want my first big screen TV. I was like, Made it. I made it, right? What, what? What? You mean I have money in the bank? I can pay all my bills and then still go to the movies and still do stuff? Like, what? How? Like, I've just never known an existence where you weren't, like, at the, you know, at the end of the month, you were like, there's nothing else, right? I'm just, I mean, just leaving college and having a job and making money. That So what I realized was that I thought that's what was going to bring happiness. But I wasn't any more happy. And then, I mean, I was doing stuff. I was having fun on the weekends, going out you know, partying or whatever. And I'm like, this is just kind of weekend happiness, right? Like the work, I could do the work. It wasn't that the work I couldn't do. I think the work didn't necessarily bring me the joy that I thought was going to be happiness ever after, right? Right. Like 
And I'm like, what's wrong with me? Something must be wrong with me because I'm not finding happiness in what I think is supposed to bring me happiness. And I think that the journey turned in from there. So I, a buddy of mine asked me to come tutor at the Upward Bound program at Mills College. And I was like, when? He said, Saturday mornings. I'm like, no, I don't wake up till like, I don't wake up on Saturday mornings because I'm out all night Friday night. You know what I'm saying? I don't get home till Saturday morning. So basically I don't wake up till Saturday evening to start over again, you know? And I, because I was most of the happiness I was finding in my life, I'm not sacrificing my party time to come and teach those students math. And he said, look, I, just, I need your help for a couple of months. I find somebody else. I just, I need a math teacher Saturday morning. It's okay. You got two months. And literally I drove all the way from Walnut Creek to Oakland. It's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not too short, but it's, you know, the Saturday mornings I'm getting up early. Got to be there at eight. I'm like, what the heck? And then students are showing up late. And so I remember just that day, like students are sitting in the corner goofing off. I'm like, what are you doing? I remember going home that first day kind of irritated by a couple of students in there who were goofing off. I'm like, wait till next week. I dare him to show up late. And so he don't make him sit in there. I, had, I started strategizing about what I was going to do differently the next week. And I was only going to be there for two. I only gave him to two months. And literally, I worked at that upper bound for almost over a year and a half, two years. And it, it began, the, it was a fire. It was a fire that this is what makes you come alive. Like, this is what I would love to be able to do. And then I was like, wait a minute. Teachers don't make money. What are you thinking, Ashanti? So I shook myself out of that that days of confusion, and I changed jobs, made more money because I needed to really reinforce the fact that this money thing was why I was I worked so hard in college, and it made the desire to do something different worse. And um, that's when it happened. So I went back to school, went to actually went to Mills College, do my credential and my master's in education, and that's when it all changed. You talk pretty candidly about not feeling. Like you could be totally emotionally vulnerable growing up in the environment that you grew up in. And it sounds as though Everford is providing that space for a lot of a lot of kids. What role do you see Everford playing in like the social emotional well being of the youth that you work with? I think it's critical. Um what, what I think I've created for myself for Aaron Ever Forward was what I wish I had when I was younger. So what I, when I, what I was trying to create for a space was um, a place that students could come, created in this, the room, my room, Portable 8, where they could come and we could have lunch together. We could talk. We could eat. We could, like, figure out what was going on, what was the things that were holding us back, what, what are our dreams and goals, and know that other people know your dreams and goals. And so for, therefore, when you're not doing your work in class, one of your brothers is supposed to, expected to, almost required to be like, hey, what's going on with you? Like when you don't show up to school and somebody knows you're missing school, somebody needs to call you or go by your house that same day, right? Like it was not like you don't get to not show up to a family and people don't wonder where you are. So we try to create an academic family for young men, right? Your presence is mandatory because you matter. Not because I'm trying to hold any power over you or trying to make you do something you don't want to do. If you don't want to be a part, then you have every right to come and tell everybody I'm my mouth. But you don't just disappear and let us start caring about you and then you walk away. So I tried to create a space where it was kind of like an expectation, right? I think it was an expectation that you are being your best. And the days you can't, you don't feel like you can be your best and you have people to help you and shore you up or got a shoulder for you to help, you know, walk with you and figure it out. So I think I was trying to create, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I, I think intuitively I knew what I was doing, but I wasn't, I had no curriculum, you know, I had no no book I was working from. I just, I know how to have empathy. I know how to listen. 
I know how to eat. I know how to care, you know? I, I was the only African-American male teacher at that school. And I think there was only one other African-American teacher. So there's no African-American teachers, very few Latino teachers. And so like you end up with like, or Latinx, right? Like whatever, you know, I think that it was like a journey of like, how do you make sure that I'm gonna stay consistent and I need to be here, right? And so I, it became like the, the, the deeper passion to my work as a math teacher was being ever forward, right? How do you see the work that Everford does intersecting with mental health? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. Um, I'll say the intersection is really interesting, right? I mean, um, and when we first started Everford, this is 2004, there weren't people really talking about men talking about their stuff, right? So people were confused. Why would you do that? Why do you need to call for men when the boys have everything, when men are taking over, you know, men are in charge of the world? Like, why do you need a special space for young men? But I could see that the young men weren't talking about the stuff they needed to talk about. Like, who cares what the power structure, the patriarchy that exists in America, when the young men we're working with are all finding, not all, a lot of them are finding themselves locked up, locked out, disconnected, trying to just barely make it month to month, right? How do we not, how do we create a world that we that looks different for them? And so what I tried to do was like say, I, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm, I'm a mentor. And so my job is to just be there as a listener. Like, let me, let me tell you what I heard you say. Let me, this is what I heard. Is this what you meant? And really being able to feedback and, and reflect back. So I think that as we, our community gets more willing to accept that mental health is not something bad and it's taking a long time, but it's still more work to do. One of our goals this year is how do we rebrand this idea of mental health? How do we rebrand what it means to be a person who is focusing on your well-being mentally? How about we create some, a new name for mental health and we call it mental muscle? Why do we call it mind strength? How do we call it? Like ultimately it's about, do I have, am I using the tools to, as I work on my muscles physically that people can see? I'm also working on the muscles that people can't see my head and my heart, right? And how do we begin to make those connections? So I think I, I, I'm really careful because sometimes people will say, well, you're not a therapist. How do you have the right to do this? I'm like, I'm not doing therapy. I'm, I'm just listening. Can we, I think I saw to some schools and I talked to educators, they're like, well, you're a black man. How do you, how, how can I do this? You know, and it was really beautiful. I was in Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas, a couple of weeks ago doing a workshop with educators. And one woman, I was so thankful for her. She said, you know, I'm, I'm a white woman. Like, how do I support these boys in my class who don't look like me? Maybe you could come and support them. And I said, you know, I want to appreciate you for speaking about that. Because oftentimes, if you don't put a name on what you feel is your barrier to reaching them, how will you ever get past the barrier? And I said to her and to all the you know, my, you know white women in the room and to all the women in general, let's start with empathy. Let's start with just being able to listen and care and it, when things are out of your your wheelhouse of, to take care of, you don't try and do them. And a lot of educators I meet have this thing that, well, I'm just a teacher of a subject, as opposed to recognizing that we uh, that education is a is a is a, a, a it has to be a union of like knowledge and humans, because if the humans aren't connected, there's no learning happening if people are not emotionally able to be present. The initiatives that Ever Forward has. I think are really game changing. Thank you. Like really, really game changing. And I was wondering, both in terms of building social emotional well being and and uh, awareness, but also in terms of building community. 
And the two that really stand out to me is the 100,000 mask campaign that you have and then the 24-hour relay. Can you tell me a little bit about the the 100,000 mask campaign? Yeah, so um, we were featuring a documentary called The Mask You Live In, which is about American masculinity and how America's hyper-masculine narrative of being a man is really destroying and hurting our boys. And so in that documentary and that, that work, we did an activity with masks and it's grown through a campaign, a worldwide movement. So the goal of the 100,000 Mask Challenge is to like recognize that there's part of ourselves at the front of the mask that we gladly let people see. And then there's the back of the mask, which are the things that we don't let people see. And so this idea that we have so much more going on with us than anybody could ever know by looking at us. And we oftentimes just get judged by what people see. And we judge people how we see them. And so I think that how do we begin to create a space for people to say, look, we don't tell people they shouldn't have masks. We're just saying like, do you have a place you can take it off? Do you have a safe place that you can take it off? And what I think is we often have more things in common than we know, but oftentimes we make our judgment with our eyes. What we've seen, we've collected over 40, about 43,000 masks um, from 14 countries. Um, our goal is to hit this first 100,000 by the end of this school year, so around May, end of May. So there's a lot of momentum kind of moving right now. We're inviting teachers from all over the world to do this activity with their students. They go on our website, everforwardclub.org. They can find masks. They can sign up. We'll, we'll mail them masks. We, we, we're funding it ourselves right now as we're trying to find some grants to fund it. But what we know is that it's, it's, it's really powerful and it's working. Could you break down what the 24-hour relay is? Yeah. So the, the 24-hour relay was an event that um, I participated in when I was in college. And what I realized was that um, there was uh, – I wanted my students to do community service. Um, and whenever Ford first started, and they were like, man, I ain't in trouble. Well, I got to do community service. Because in their minds, only people who do community service – are people who get in trouble. And I'm like, no, community service is how we help our community be better. And they're like, well, I ain't picking up no trash around the streets. You know what I'm saying? Like, because it's all about the image, right? <laughs> like, oh. So I was like, okay, how about we figure out how to do community service in a different way? So we said, let's let's put on this event. And I had already had it in the back of my mind. We wanted to throw it at one point, you know, in my life at Ever Forward. I didn't know it was going to happen this soon. And it was like, it's happening. So we did it literally the first year that we were existed. And it was um, an event where students camp on the football field and on a team of 10, they commit to walking and running for 24 hours. So one mile at a time and a relay style, one person will walk or run a mile and they do it as a relay for 24 hours, 10 a.m. Saturday to 10 a.m. Sunday. It's always Memorial Day weekend. And so basically that's how it happens. So this year will be our 16th annual. It it coincides with our, our anniversary of our organization. And we are going to, in May, our goal is to have about 30 teams out there, about 300 students. And we have a bunch of volunteers who come and help out the 24 hours. It's like a big slumber party. It's DJs and music and food. And it's just like a big party for 24 hours. So this year's our sweet 16, right? So we're going to have a, try and make it a little bit like we're going to just do it up for everybody this year. And we're going to have a lot of fun. I saw on social media, Everford had, some students down at an event at city hall or something like that. It was a gala. It was our first gala, our first fundraising dinner. And uh, yeah, they did, the young men did a great job of welcoming the guests in and they got to get most of them at, except for two of them, I mean, four of them had never had a suit before. So they got to dress up and they were looking, they were looking sharp. They got to pick their own suit. It was a black tie event, but I said, pick the suit you want. Like pick the suit that you're going to feel good in. Right. Like, you know, everyone needs a black suit, but I wanted them to really have a suit that they were going to, like, be able to shine in. And so a couple of them had black suits. A couple of them went all out and 
did something different. So it was great. What are you doing to take care of yourself? You're taking on a lot of the social emotional issues that or challenges that kids might be confronted by. How are you doing? How do you go about self care? And like, are you in therapy? Do what are you doing to make sure that you're good? Yeah, and thank you for asking that. I'm actually I took a picture in the bar station the other day about um this therapy app, talk something or whatever. And I'm actually I've been thinking about getting a therapist. I've been wanting one. I've been I don't even know where to start really. I don't. So I'm like in the process of like looking. Um, for myself, I mean I'm on a men's team. That is one of my weekly time to just kind of like take off my mask to go and just just like you know just be just be Ashanti and figure out where I'm feeling like I'm doing well and what I'm not doing well at and knowing that people are not going to judge me or ridicule me, but they want to help me and build me up. And I, I do that, you know, um, I, I do a lot of foot massages, right? Like just to go and just at the end of the week, you know, once, a, you know, it's just like, I think I need one today, right? Like <laughs> I go and just be able to just like relax and just take take some moments for myself you know i i meet with uh one of my buddies uh we have this thing called um radical self-care and we have to do it once a month so either we meet together so we go for a walk we go for the hike we go to get a foot massage like and we do it once a month and we, we can't meet up we both have to go on our own and it's a really accountability way right how do i how do we hold each other accountable to making sure we're doing that radical self-care like why why can't we as as activists be people who are or teachers be like, I am so well rested. I had a great night's sleep last night, right? Why do we always gotta be like, man, I'm just trying to get through this week? So yeah, I do a lot of I do I'm I'm learning to do more of the self-care. Um in the beginning of my, you know, journey at Everford. Never thought about really myself. What are your goals and hopes for Everford moving forward? No pun intended. Yeah, man. I like the pun. Um We've been trying to figure it out for a while, but I think it's really starting to hit that place of like, we need to be training more educators who in that same school, they don't need to bring us in necessarily as a mentor. They need to learn how to mentor their students. And when they don't have a man on campus who can mentor for their young men or for their young women or for the students who may not identify in the, in the binary, then they need to begin bringing those people to a training so they can begin creating it. Right. So I think that as ever forward begins to grow, we're going to be probably you know more franchising the model of what it looks like. And like, here's what it looks like. And here's how we recommend you do it. And you ultimately hold these contexts to be, you know, um, to be, be strong in your campus, which will help your students do better. And it hopefully helps those teachers not only learn those skills, it helps them to do better as teachers as well when they're building those contexts. So I think it's a it's a growing it's a growing work. But I think our work is how to be sustainable as an organization, how to pay our people well, that we're going to be a nonprofit organization probably, but we are not going to have people have to struggle and sacrifice their livelihood to be able to work for us. Like We want to create a, a new model of what nonprofits can do and what they do to not only improve the lives of the people that they're that's under, their, under their mission, but also the people who work with them. And that's what my vision is. So it's a lot of work. And I know that I'm, you know, I know what I'm really good at, and I'm learning how to find the right people around me to help me with the things that I'm not good at. Although Ashanti's work with the Everford Club does not specifically focus on issues surrounding mental health, it is clear that the emotional support and mentorship he provides youth in Oakland is needed. 
The 100,000 Mask campaign is rooted in the mental well-being of these kids. It's a channel for them to embrace their inner fears, anguish, and traumas. Most of all, it serves as a constant reminder that they are not alone, that other people struggle too. Just imagine these boys' lives without ever Ford and Ashanti. How much different would their lives look? And what would that mean for their futures? Through Everford, Ashanti is helping to equip these young men. They are getting the educational and emotional tools needed to pull themselves out of the hood. To me, Ashanti is an inner city hero, a man who has made sacrifices to help revive his community. However, too many people like Ashanti carry this burden. The psychological effects of growing up surrounded by poverty and violence are real. And too often those who make it out never want to go back. But I guess that's what pulls people like myself and Ashanti into education. It's a feeling and burden of not wanting to leave kids in the hood behind. Because we not only see ourselves in them, but we also see in them what they might not see in themselves. Before we close out, I just want to share one resource with everyone. It's an app. It's called the Not Okay app. You can download it on iOS and Android. And essentially, the app allows you to input up to five contacts. Ideally, people that you'd want to be connected to in a time of crisis. I have it on my phone. I have my five contacts in there. I know my brother and, and my best friend got notifications about it. And they were like, what the hell is this? And I had to break it down to them. Like, no, it's this app that, you know, if I'm in a crisis, I can... Just hit this button and, you know, it'll blast out to them. So I just think it's a brilliant idea. If you're someone that struggles or you're just somebody that wants to make sure that you have support, I would definitely download the Not Okay app. Also, for any of my educators out there, make sure you go check out Everforward. You can check their Instagram at, at Everforward. You can also check them on their website. So that's all we got for this episode, and I'll catch you the next go-round. Peace. <laughs>